Right. So, um, we're in lesson number 32, Romans chapter 5. As we continue our series here, uh, Grace and Peace, um, Paul's message to uh, the saints in Rome, people he never met, some he knew, but um, a church that was growing and powerful, but had questions. And there was a lot of question about the law, about the Jews. Of course, remember, as I've said before, they didn't have a Bible yet. And so they're just hearing messages. Some have heard Paul's messages before. They've been in other parts of the Roman world, and they've heard some of Paul's messages. Others have never heard from this man. So what he's doing is presenting in the book of Romans uh, what the gospel is and what this gospel has done for believers. The essence of the gospel is simply we are saved by faith, right? That the righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live. Righteous, justified, you could put it both ways. Those who are brought back into right standing, it's through faith. And that's an important element that we're going to engage uh, in this section tonight. Because there's things that we participate in that God has done. Reconciliation. And God has reconciled the world to himself. But righteousness can only be obtained by faith. And so the difference that we'll see as we look at these two um, in these passages tonight. So Romans chapter 5. The title is called Much More because we're going to see that that phrase occurs uh, several times through this section. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some of your translations say may say atonement, but it's actually this word for reconciliation. So here in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's reached kind of a pinnacle. Chapter 5 is, is like, to me, a great pinnacle. Then it goes a little bit down when he talks in chapter 6 and 7, and he's talking about living. Not that there's not good in that, but it's more about what you need to do with what God has done in you. And then in chapter 8, it comes much back up to another great peak, um, 
in a sense, one of the greatest peaks in the, in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And so, declaring what God has done for us by the Spirit that lives in us. So, we're looking forward to those lessons, and we will get there. Um, the thing that we saw last week in our study, talking about, you know, that we are pressed, right? We're pressed by circumstances of this world, the devil, um, people, um, electrical power. Um, we are pressed. But that pressing is not to destroy us. If, if we are drawing from the power and the grace of God. So that this pressure or tribulation generates endurance. Now that's not automatic because it's not in everybody. You've got to be pushing against it. And in order to push against the pressure of this world, you've got to have the grace of God working in your life. You need to draw from him. So for the believer... For the one drawing from the things of God, pressure generates endurance. And that endurance then generates character, testimony, Um, merit badge. It's one of the ways I described it, Uh, a provenness, so that the, the pressure generated endurance as I pushed it off, then I developed character or a testimony that I got through this. And that testimony then generates a hope that I can get through bigger things. How about anything? I can, if I draw from God, I can get through this. And I can press my way through and there will be a way. And if I'm drawing from God. Now, a lot of people want to want to say there's a lot of theologians that want to present well god sends the pressure to teach us there's no word for teaching in any of that there's nothing about learning lessons what's in there is that we are pressed but we resist it if the pressure is coming from god then resisting it would be resisting the will of god if it's from god go with it now, God may lead us to difficult places. Anybody ever have that testimony? <laughs> God leads us sometimes into difficult places, but he also gives us the ability to get through them. So this whole idea that these things that, that of this world, they come against us and God does this to us so that we can develop uh, character. No, God did do it. God gives us the strength to press against it. It's pressing us, and we are pressing back. And you know what? Through Christ, we're more than what? Conquerors. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to overcome this thing. So, that's the, that's the message there. But in point was, this shows the love of God. In all of this, it is God's love that is shown. And hope makes us not ashamed. We don't have to turn our face. If I get into pressure, I don't have to walk away, tail between my legs, walk off, shrug away, try to fake it, disappear. 
I know every one of us has faced things, pressures where it's like, can I just, can I just become invisible? You know, pressures that we don't want to go through. And it's like, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to face this. And, um, you know, when I was called to the principal's office when I was in high school, and I, I wanted to become invisible. Could I just become invisible? And that was nothing compared to going home and meeting my father. And I, I really wanted to be invisible, but I wasn't. So but that's not the issue here. The issue here is the world. But God's power working through us. And the fact that God turns this pressure into character and hope shows his love for us. That there is nothing in this world that can destroy us, which we will pick up that theme in chapter 8. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that can take us away. And so this hope generates an, an understanding of God's love that has been poured out and into our hearts. That's what the word means. This love that's been poured out and into our heart. And this love is so great, God overwhelms us with his love. I can get through this. If I'm going through this, God is here. He will give me the strength. He'll give me the wisdom. He'll take me on. And that leads us then to this next section. Paul, it's, it's almost like Paul says, you want to talk about love? You want to talk about the love of God? Let me tell you how great the love of God is. And so he starts here at verse 6. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What does he mean by while we were weak? While we had no strength. And that phrase, at the right time, don't see it the same as Galatians chapter 4, that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. That was, a, that was an appointed thing. This at the right time means at that time in your life, the weakest that you were, God showed up. And at that right time, when you could not do anything for yourself, I've had the privilege of ministering to people at a close point to death. When they are unable to do anything, and at that point of death, I've seen people give themselves to Jesus. You talk about at the right time. That's the right time. There can't be a more right-er time. Right? I just made that word up. But that's a perfect time. God shows up. And at the time I was the weakest in my life, God showed up. And this is what he did in that weakness that I was in. And so God shows up to show us his grace. Now, in my best imitation of an Emerald Lagasse infomercial, here in chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, he's got this much more, much more, and more than that. When I read those, it was like, yeah, this is, this is Emerald. This, if Emerald had a favorite part of the Bible, this might be it. Because you don't, you don't just get this, you get much more. But that's not all. You get much more. 
And if you just think that's the end of it, no, there's more than that. And so Paul has has these multiplied phrases that he wants us to catch a hold of. There's there's so much more. And the more you think about it, the more you understand how much God has done for us. There are so many believers. I know they're saved, but they have no real regard for everything that God has done. Part of that's because they never read the Bible. They never attend church. They, they may have come to salvation, but they've got no enlightenment from the things that God wants believers to have. But you've got to be committed. How many of you have grown since you came to the Lord? Yeah, I'm not talking about science. We, we all have grown, but... But we've, we've gained because of what God has done. Now, improving God's love, there's a couple things that I want to show down at the bottom of your first page. The coming of Christ and the death of Christ are proof of God's love. He sent him because he loved us. He died on the cross because he loved us. And so those, they, they show the love of God. But there are some people that it's almost, they see it this way. On one hand, there was this gentle, loving Christ. Jesus was gentle and loving. On the other hand, was this angry and vengeful God. So you get God in heaven and Jesus. And it's like God was doing this and Jesus was receiving this. But that's not the case. It's, Jesus did not answer the, the assault of a vengeful God. He didn't come in to defend us from a God who was ready to destroy us. Were we under condemnation? Yeah. Have been since the fall. But God wasn't coming down to destroy us. It's not like Jesus had to come and do something to change God's attitude. Well, let me take, you know, let me see if I can get him to soften things up a little bit. I'll see if I can appease him a little bit, see if I can make. But in religion after religion, that's what they're doing. And their attitudes toward their gods, or toward the God, whatever that is, is that we got to do something to appease him. So sacrifices and gifts and doing good and keeping yourself right and all those things. But you, you got to watch out. You know, the, one of the greatest religions in the world, Buddhism, is, you know, there's karma out there. And no matter how much you do good, if you do bad, it's going to come back to bite you. You will pay for it. Someday, somehow, somewhere, you will pay for it. And so there is, there's no redeemer. In religion after religion, there is no redeemer. There's no, no one to somehow come between you and this vengeful God. But that's not the case. Jesus didn't come to change God's attitude. 
See, he didn't come to make God nice. He came in response to the great love that God had for us. He loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us. That's love. That's not God in his vengeance. It's, it's like, yes, you're under sin, but I'm going to do something so you can come to me. And it's absolutely the opposite of what so many people think. That God sits in heaven as this great judge and that Jesus is here. And one of the great religions of the world, um, they've even brought in um, someone to stand in between. All right, I'll just say it, Mary. And part of the whole Mariology and part of the Mary, um, the, the growth of that was that God was mean and angry and Jesus came to die, but then when Jesus went to heaven, he's mean and angry because he's the judge that's coming back. So we need Mary to intervene for us. And so that's why they plead to Mary. It's like you asking your little sister to go talk to mom instead of you go talk to mom. You know, so that there's you know, somebody to take away. I need somebody to go in because it's too dangerous for me. Well, that's not the way it is with God. And this passage is, is all about that. It's God's love. He loved us from the start. And the sending of his son was proof of that love, was a demonstration of that love. And so the wonder of this is that God shows his love in this way. And that's what it says, bottom of your first page, while we were still weak at the right time, at the time when you were the weakest, at the time when you needed it most, at the time that you could not do anything for yourself, Christ died. For who? The ungodly. He didn't die for the good people. He did. He did. Because people thought they were good, but they were not. They were ungodly. Everyone was ungodly. The whole world was ungodly and so it's all of mankind that he died for not just people who you know couldn't help themselves verse 7 one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. I want you to notice in verse 9 is the word justified. We have been justified. In verse 10, it's if while we were enemies we were reconciled. So you've got these two phrases, justification and reconciliation. And so we're going to look at that. Now, this section is basically four sentences, and each one of these sentences has a, a purpose that Paul is presenting in the sentence. The first sentence is, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. We were unable to do anything. The theological term that's used here is depravity. D-E-P-R-A-V-I-T-Y. 
It's there in your notes. Depravity. And depravity doesn't mean that you're bad. It means you're bad off. You cannot do anything about your situation. That's what depravity is. There's nothing you can do. Now, yeah, we say a depraved mind, but what what they mean by a depraved mind or depraved person is they are so bad off that there is nothing they can do. They They can't stop themselves. They can't help themselves. There is nothing there. It's almost like we could use the word unredeemable. But what? No one, no one is unredeemable. And so no one is beyond God's redemptive love. But we were depraved. We were so bad off there wasn't a thing we could do for ourselves. We couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't change ourselves. There's nothing that we could attain to. In the second part of this chapter, he's going to go into talking about Adam and Christ. And so that's what we'll see next week, these these two men, Adam and Christ. In Adam we die, in Christ we live. And we see the comparison between these two and the statements that Paul makes. And people think, well, you know, the law was putting us to death in the law. No, there's a lot of people that died before the law. There was no law for Adam. There was just one one command, one thing, and he violated that. So there's, there's this, this work that God is doing, and the idea of this is what God wants to do for us. And there is no more generous way for God to show his love than to redeem us when we're unredeemable. When we, to save us when we are not worth saving. In the world's image, in the world's eyes, sometimes in people's own eyes. There's, do you ever talk to somebody that just thinks they're so bad that they can't be saved? Do you ever talk to somebody like that? There are people that are so, they're so overwhelmed. It's like, God can't save me. God, God can never forgive me. I, I can forgive other people. I understand that that principle and I forgive a lot of people but I don't see how God could ever forgive me and unfortunately there are some people who will help you think that way but no one is unforgivable nothing we have done is beyond God's grace and his love so now verses 7 and 8 form the second sentence and so this is one sentence in the Greek For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, and then we know this phrase, though perhaps for a good person. Paul throws that in there because he knows he's going to say, you know, that he's going to say one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And if he'd just gone on with that, somebody would say, yeah, but I know somebody that died for a righteous person. He knows he's going to get, what, blowback. (laughs) He's going to to get somebody that's going to say, yeah, but, but what about so-and-so or what if you know the old hypothetical can I just tell you I hate hypothetical questions I really do because there's no reality so I'm arguing against a non-reality but anyway I'll move on from that but 
He says one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And his point is, God died for us while we were ungodly, unrighteous. And you would scarcely die for a righteous person. And someone will say, yeah, but what about so-and-so? And they died for a good person, or they did this. All right, so I put a little class here of, of what he means while he's throwing that sentence in. It is very rare. It does happen. But it's rare for someone to step in and die for someone else. That's not common. But yet, we're surrounded by people, actually every day, who do this. They're called first responders. And they're willing. Firemen, policemen, other people who will be first responders. Um, During the, the COVID thing, nurses, doctors, people are willing to go and give themselves to take care of people who were infected knowing that they may end up themselves so yes there are people who will die for someone else all right so let's get past that all right there are a number of classes of people and that's good and that's wonderful and we we're thankful for that but but wait let's back up so they died for them what changed the person lived longer, but ultimately they are what? They're going to die. Nothing really changed about their life. So, yes, yeah, sure, first responders might give, soldiers may give, people will rescue a child, a good Samaritan, maybe somebody that steps in to stop some kind of abuse and, and something else happens. You know, it's, it's good, but even if the person that you rescued lives, they're just going to die again. Nothing really changes. But when Jesus steps in, when he died for us, there was a lot of change. He didn't just die to help us physically stay alive, though there are some people who got saved so they could physically stay alive. But he died so that we could be eternally alive. He died and removed our sin. Not just the problem that was causing us to die. He removed the sin. The burden that I would have had if somebody saved me from drowning in the ocean and somebody saved and then they drowned and I got out of that I'd be there but my sin is still with me the sin didn't go away it's still there because what they did could not change my real problem is not physical death though that's what a lot of the world thinks so what do they do with physical death they try to soften it they try not to think about it they relegate it to uh, meaninglessness and so most people don't want to really even think about death so you get you talk to people like atheists or others it's like so where do you go when you die what happens when you die you go to nothingness really is there such a place as nothingness or is there something there They don't want to think about it, but there it is. So 
this is what Jesus has done for us, that, that he has brought us to a place that is greater than just physically staying alive. It's that he intervened in the issue of our sin. And he goes on to say it that way, verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were what? Sinners, still sinners. So it's not just that we were weak, that we were unable. It's not just that we were um, unable to help ourselves. We were poor. It's not just that. We were what? Sinners. See, that's something nobody else can change. That while we were sinners, Christ died. And it's a small word, but it's a big word. Christ died, what? For us. For us. And that doesn't just mean in place of us. It means that what his death did exchanged things. The life that he had now becomes mine. And the sin that I had now becomes his. So it is a transition of of everything I was to him and everything he was to me. He died for us. Not just in my place. And that's again is where a lot of believers are limited. They only think of Jesus dying in their place. But he didn't just die in your place. He died to make this incredible exchange. So that what he had becomes yours and what you have becomes his. Christ died for us. He who knew no sin, who knew no sin, became sin for us. That we might be the righteousness of God in him. That we might obtain this place of right standing. And so this is that glorious work that God has done. And it's just this tiny little three-letter word. In place of. But more than in place of. In exchange for. A total exchange. And that's what's wrapped up in this great sentence. It is in place of sinners. Later on... We're called enemies. Down in verse 10, we are enemies. Not just weak. Not just ungodly. We're also what? Enemies. He didn't just die to change places. He died so that we would not bear what we deserved. And he would take it. And so this is that beautiful work that God has done. Um, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, Romans 4, 5, it's there about the middle of your page, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. We believe in the one who justifies or makes righteous, or brings into right standing, right relationship, 
who believes in the one who justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the godly. He doesn't justify the people who are, who are worth it. He doesn't justify the people who have changed, the people who have made it, the people who have gotten rid of their problem. He doesn't justify the strong. He doesn't justify the godly. He doesn't justify the good people. He justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. And the one who justifies, who believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It doesn't just say the one who believes is made righteous. That would be good and that would be true. But Paul wants to emphasize one element, faith. You cannot be justified without faith. For the just shall live. That's not what it says. The just will live by God's love. That's what it says. The just will live because they've done the right things. No. The just shall live by what? Faith. So this idea of faith is tied together with justification. You cannot have this right relationship with God without faith. You've got to be engaged. You have to believe. The one who believes in him, who justifies or makes right the ungodly, that was me, that was you. Yes, you were. You were ungodly. I'm just saying it. But he justifies us, makes us righteous. How? By your faith. And it's not by his faith, which is, like I told you, what the Universalist Church wants us to say, that we are saved by his faith. No, we are not saved by his faith. We're saved by our faith. We have to believe. Or there is no justification. It's offered. But it's not taken. Now, verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, this third sentence then goes into a further illustration of the impact of God's overwhelming love. That's what he's been talking about since the beginning of this chapter. His love for us. And in using this phrase, much more shall we be, much more shall we be saved, verse 9, much more, verse 10, more than that, verse 11. In, in these statements, he shows us that there is something that God is doing that is greater than what follows. So, there's a, there's a little bit of a, of a formula that goes along with this, and we'll talk about that as we get down to the bottom of this page. Paul argues from a greater thing to something that's lesser. Something that's greater to something that's lesser. If this part is true, if this part is true, then this part is true also. All right, and that's what he's saying. And so here's one statement that is so great, and here's something that's 
less. Now, by less, don't think less in value, less of, in, less of importance, less in, in worth. Don't think in that manner. The idea, and look down to the bottom of your page, it's not about value or rank. It's that it's less in the sense that it's still true, but it's only true because the first part's true. If the first part wasn't true, this part would not be true. So here's what he says. The greater work. Verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, that's the greater work, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now you see, you look at that and you say, well, wait a minute, much more means that this is the greater part. No, the greater part comes first. And the idea of this word really isn't that this is greater, it's that it necessarily follows, but it only follows if the first part is true. So if, read the, read the passage, if you've not been justified by his blood, right? Then what's the second part? You will not be saved from the wrath. So the first part has to be done because that's the greater thing. The result of that is here. doesn't mean it's of less value, less importance, because, praise God, being saved from his wrath is of incredible value. But the idea behind these two things is that one has to happen first. It's like it's going from the heavier thing to the lighter thing, from the harder thing to the easier thing. So put that, that idea in there. If the harder thing is we have been justified by his blood, the easier thing is we're saved from his wrath. Right? Can you see it that way? So if we've been justified by faith, that's the hardest part. And if we've been justified by his faith, or by his blood, then we're going to be saved from his wrath. It's like, of course. Right? From the primary thing to the secondary. So the first part is the primary. Justified by his blood. Because if you've not been justified by his blood, uh, my friend, you are not going to be saved from wrath. And you don't want to not be saved from wrath. So, right. Anyway, that's what I meant. So, top of your next page. The greater work is justified by his blood. I'll come back to that thought here in just a minute. By his blood. Top of page three. The lesser work is, is if that is true, since that's true, then Christ's death will certainly save us from God's wrath which is to come. If he saved you when you were ungodly, when you were a sinner, when you were an enemy, why would he then allow you to face his wrath? Now that you're saved, you're his. In the context here, he doesn't use the... the the father-son imagery, but he uses that later on. Here we could say friend. Abraham became a friend of God. If God did this 
then why would he not help us here? Look there, um, i got three verses, I'll come back to those in just a minute, but go down uh, to the bottom of those three verses. Uh, Church Father Chrysostom, uh, 4th century I think, 3rd or 4th century, Chrysostom, uh, he wrote this, if God gave a great gift to his enemies, that's what you were, if he gave the great gift of what? Justification. Right relationship, which involves eternal life. If he gave that to you while you were his enemies, will he give anything less to his friends? If God did that for an enemy, why would he then let you face wrath? Right, and so that's the imagery that's here. And the phrase, we have been justified by faith, and we have been justified by his blood. So, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, having then been justified by faith, right? Justified by faith. Here it says, justified by his blood. Is that the same thing? Um, no. They're not the same thing, because they're not the same in relationship. They're not the same in what they, the purpose. So, Here's what it is. Justified by his faith, the Greek preposition ek that's used there, faith, that means faith is the means or the agency or the action by which God justifies us. You are justified by faith because you exercised faith. Right? Does that, do you get that? Justified by faith means you got involved. Justified by faith. This is this is the agency. This is how I got there. I came to church tonight by car. That's the agency that was used to get me here. All right? And so I came. You are justified. This is brought into a right relationship with God through the agency of faith. You had to do something. And this is so vital. In understanding the message of Romans, in understanding the message of the gospel, you've got to be involved. God doesn't sovereignly save people. By his sovereignty, he appointed this principle that if you believe, you're made righteous. God used his sovereign authority to establish that. But you've got to engage, you have to believe. God, in his sovereignty, said, Your works won't count. But I love you and I'm going to save you. That's God's purpose. And if God established it, then there's nothing you can do about it. God put faith as a primary uh, purpose, purpose in this whole thing, justified by faith. But then in this statement, it says we're justified by his blood. Now, that phrase, by his blood, has to do with nothing about you. Because it's not your blood. <laughs> We're justified by whose blood? Jesus. Jesus' blood. By the blood that was shed by him. And the idea here is substitutionary. We are saved, justified, made righteous by his blood. Uh, because of his blood. 
So we're justified because of the blood. If there was no blood, we would not be justified. No matter how much faith you had, if he didn't die for us, you you couldn't be saved. So these things work together. You've got to believe, but God had to do his part. And this part was done by the Lord Jesus Christ in bringing us to him. And so this idea that we've been justified now by his blood or this is the way that he has done it because of his blood. And the idea that the blood had to be shed. And he's going to talk more about that as he goes through this letter. Now, verse 10. It's the next sentence. He comes back to the same statement. Before, it's while we were weak, before we were sinners, before we were ungodly. Now he's just going to say, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we're reconciled. While we were enemies. You didn't make peace with God, and then he reconciled with you. You didn't come to the table with your part of the agreement. Okay, now God... I'm going to I'm going to put this on the table. Here's here's my chips. And I'm going to put my chips on the table. You put your chips on the table and we'll, you know, we'll decide who's going to uh get this reconciliation. Let's let's get this all out of the way. Let's get the problems out of the way. What do you have against me? Well, here's what I got against you. And by the way, there's a lot of people that have a lot against God. And so their attitude stands in between. It's like, no, God's, God's got to make it right with me before I'll be saved. But let me tell you something. He did that before you came to the table. Now, with justification, you have to believe. Right? You have to believe. If you're not believing, you can't be made right. The just shall live by faith. But with reconciliation, it happened whether you believed or not. God has reconciled the world to himself. Whoa. But there's a lot of people in the world that don't believe. Doesn't change anything. He's reconciled himself to them. The question isn't whether he has. The question is, are you reconciled to him have you accepted what he's done for you and that's what's in this section so we have these two things much more if while we were sinners we were reconciled to god by the death of his son how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life so what's the greater part of this the first half The first half is, while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That part had to be done so that the second part can follow. And the second part is, we're reconciled, we're saved by his life. We're not just saved by his death, we're saved by his life. We're saved by the fact that he is alive forever in heaven. He has entered into the very presence of God. He is our 
intercessor. He is the one who is making things right in heaven. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and bring you to myself. So he is alive, not just the few minutes he walked on the earth after his resurrection, you know, a couple days that he was around and then he went to heaven. No, he is alive now. And this reconciliation is that we have now been brought into this relationship with God. Reconciliation, hostility is taken out of the way. We were enemies because of our sin. But God said, let me do something about that. So I took all your sin and I put it on my son. And so I am no longer angry with you. The hostility is gone. And you are saved by the life of my son. Do you accept that? Do you? Well, we have. As I was growing up, I knew about Jesus' death, but I didn't understand that it had anything to do with me. I didn't see it intersecting in my life. And so if, if, if I was in this, this is where I would have been. Yeah, I could see God reconciling the world, but I'd never done anything about accepting that reconciliation, about acknowledging what was mine. The greater work is that while we were sinners, he died for us. That while we were his enemies, he died for us. Now, the question is, what about me? Now that I have been reconciled to God, guess what? I'm saved by his life. It's one thing to be saved by his death. That's how you get born again. To be saved by his life is what we do in this life right now. It's how we draw from the hope and the help that God gives us. So we have this blessed relationship that God has brought us into. I want to go back up to the top of your page three there. Some verses that I wrote in there, they, they apply up there, they apply down here. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 says, And that we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. It's not just what he did in the past. It's what he's doing now and what he's going to do in the future. Saved by his death and saved by his life. He is our deliverer. It's not a past tense verb. It's not he is the one who delivered us. And some translations put it that way. But no, it's he is our deliverer from the wrath to come. He's alive delivering me, saving me in this life. How many of you have experienced a saving work of God in your life since you got saved? That God stepped in and saved you. Maybe from death. Maybe from loneliness. Maybe from oppression. Maybe from fear. God stepped in and he saved you. In this life. So there is a salvation that is past, and there is a salvation that's going on. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests, talking about the priests of Aaron, the former priests were many in number, 
because they were prevented by death from continuing office. <laughs> they, you can't be a priest forever if you die. Doesn't work. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues, how long? Forever. His priesthood didn't die when he died. His priesthood continues. Even now, he is alive forever. Doing what? Look at verse 25. Consequently, because of this, as a conclusion, he is able to save to the uttermost. Save all the way to the end is what the Greek verb would mean. He's able to save you all the way to the end. Not just a little ways, not just a part ways, not almost there. He almost got there, but I just didn't. No, he's able to save us, what? All the way to the end. Why? Because he's ever alive making intercession. It's not that he was ever alive and made intercession in the past. No, his intercession is ongoing and it's future. I, one time thinking about this verse, I, I, I put it this way. God is saving me from my own tendency towards self-destruction. Each of us have a tendency for self-destruction. But he's ever alive interceding. Ever alive saving us. So that he can bring us all the way to the end. Why? Because he's ever alive making intercession. So, this idea that God is there, alive, for us. In Romans, down to the bottom of your page. Romans 1 through 18. Mankind was at war with God. They don't like you. We're not going to do what you say. We're going to live our own way. We're going to invent ways to live. We're going to be creative. God was creative, so we're going to be creative and think up ways to sin. And that's what Romans 1, 18 through 32 is all about. We are going to sin like no one has ever seen sin before. It sounds like our culture today it really does. But you know what? God wasn't at war with man. There were some judgments that came, but they were judgments to show that God was in control. He could rule things, and he was going to send a redeemer. But you see, there was a place where in our, in our time of rebellion, God made provision. Look at this passage, and I forgot to put the scripture reference here, um, but this is Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Colossians chapter 1, bottom of your page. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself. He reconciled to himself. He didn't reconcile you to him. He reconciled man taking on our sin. He reconciled that to God. He became sin for us, and thereby brought this reconciliation and it was God reconciling man to himself and he's reconciling all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace how by the blood of his cross and so this reconciliation depended upon the blood of the cross and you who were alienated top of page four you who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body 
of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a powerful, this is such a powerful passage. But God was doing all of this for us. That means in exchange, not because we couldn't do it. It's like, well, I can't. You know, I can't carry this thing. Would you carry it for me? No, it's not that kind of for. It's in exchange for. And he took all of our sin. And we all know 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in chapter 2 Corinthians 5, we are told that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Former things passed away. All things have been made new. And then Paul goes on to talk about this, this reconciliation. God is in Christ doing what? reconciling the world to himself he's reconciling the world to himself listen and then what pleading be reconciled to god god has made us ambassadors to carry this message and our message is god needs to reconcile himself to you no you need to reconcile yourself to God because he did his part. He did what he could do. He did what you couldn't do. But you have to do something that he can't do. He cannot accept reconciliation for you. You have to do that. Now, justification, you have to believe. You must engage your faith to have right standing with God. Reconciliation, God did it. But you've got to accept it. And so we accept this reconciliation again by what? How do we accept the reconciliation? By faith. But it's already done. Justification is not done. God has not justified the world. God has not justified all mankind. God has not justified unbelievers. But he has reconciled the ungodly. He has removed the barrier that was between. He removed the hostility. He removed that thing that stood between us and enjoying this relationship with God that is offered to us through faith. And so we have this beautiful picture here of God doing the greater so that we could have the lesser, of God doing what was impossible so that we could have what is possible, and God showing his strength in order that we can have the things that we are able to obtain. If he paid for our death, how much more is he going to save us in this life? How much more is God going to be at work for those who are his own? He died while you were a sinner. Now he wants you to live in his grace and in the joy that he has for us. We'll take up and finish some of the thoughts in verse 11 and then go into the next section about two men. Adam and Christ. And getting that relationship between these two uh, helps us to understand all that God has done. So, um, I suggest...